0: So this is Isaiah, and this is one of the famous prophecies um, talking about the coming of the Messiah. This is what he says. He says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's, The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this promise. And Lord, I pray that as we look at it this morning, Lord, that your spirit would be at work revealing your truth. Amen. So I find myself wondering quite a lot at the moment how the history books are going to portray this time that we are living in in the UK at the moment. How will they portray the decisions that have been made or what the leadership has been like? I find myself feeling particularly sorry for my children who will no doubt have to study this in their history lessons, who will be learning and revising about Brexit Our country, it's in a place where there's disunity, there's division, there's confusion. No one's quite sure what the future is going to look like. And as we come to the elections, we are being asked to actively engage with who our leadership should be. And I don't know about you, but I find myself easily disillusioned as I watch the debates and I hear this repetitive rhetoric and attack against other parties i find it very hard to discern who can i actually trust which leader actually has the character of a leader that i would want to see who is wise who is just who has integrity who is honest and as we look at this passage we find that israel is in an even worse place than the uk today as isaiah writes israel is divided It's disunited. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, where ten tribes of Israel are. Then there's the southern kingdom of Judah, where two tribes are. During Isaiah's time, the Assyrians come and invade the northern kingdom. Isaiah prophesies that the southern kingdom is going to be invaded by the Babylonians. Israel has this huge promise, this promise that was given to Abraham, that the descendants are going to number more than the stars. And yet, in this passage, just before the one we've looked at, Isaiah prophesies that Israel is going to be reduced to a mere remnant, a mere stump, this magnificent tree, all of its branches, lopped off. That's the judgment that comes on Israel because of her unfaithfulness. And yet, in Isaiah, we see this sort of oscillating between judgment and salvation, Isaiah says, but God is faithful to Israel and he will give you this Messiah. He will give you this leader who will come and change everything. And essentially, what we have in this passage is Isaiah's manifesto for the Messiah, who he is, what he came to do. And as we look at it, the challenge for us, I think, is to ask ourselves two questions. The first is, do I really know The Messiah, who he actually is? And do I really know who I am before him? So who is this Messiah? Verses 2 to 3, it says that he is wise. It says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might. It says he will delight in the fear of the Lord. I tell you something, it's very difficult to define what the wisdom of God looks like, because essentially it's a mystery. But this verse tells us that it begins with delighting in the fear of the Lord. It's the opposite to the world's wisdom. It does not begin with a posture of saying that it's all about success. It's all about strength. It's all about might. It's all about the self and self-promotion that we see in leadership today. Instead, It says that the wisdom of God, this wisdom that the Messiah has, is to delight in the fear of the Lord, is to know that without God, we are nothing. We have nothing. And even the Messiah, even the Son of God, knows the awesomeness of God and finds himself on his knees before God. That is what the wisdom of God looks like. And we see it embodied in Jesus in the Christmas story. Anyone, if you were going to write how God should have come to earth to save the world, we all know, don't we? We would have written, come in power, show your strength, show your might. So of course, God does the absolute opposite. He chooses the weakest possible entrance that God could have made into this world. He sends a baby whose first bed that he ever sleeps in is a feeding trough. His entrance is defined by weakness, insignificance, vulnerability. No influence, poverty. When Jesus' parents took him to the temple to have him circumcised, all they could offer to the temple was two birds, which was the poorest possible offering that someone could bring. His campaign trail later on in those last few years He goes to towns and villages that no one cares about. He goes to people that society tries to forget about. This Messiah, he's wise, and yet he chooses his route to us through the lowest of the low, through the absolute depths. And it's in that weakness that we see the wisdom of God. It's in that weakness that we see that God knew that it was only that way that would fully reveal to us the strength of God's love for us, that only that would convince us of how much he loves us. So we have this leader who is wise, not in the world's eyes. He's foolish in the world's eyes, but he is wise in God's wisdom. He puts himself not at the front, but at the bottom, before the Lord. And then we see this Messiah who is just, verses 3 to 5. It says, with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Sometimes it's easy to feel disillusioned about justice in itself. We try so hard to bring justice on those that do wrong. And yet there are always people who do wrong. And there are always the poor. Sometimes I feel so helpless when you look at the situation and you look at people who are going to the food bank for the umpteenth time to get their food and you think, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. And yet here we are told we have a Messiah who is coming to address exactly this. And he's not just coming as a distance God saying he'll help. He's not just, you know, commuting in and then going back to his place of comfort Instead, the way that he brings this justice, the way that he comes to be a voice for the poor is by literally becoming one of them. He comes as a poor man and he comes and lives alongside the poor. And it is through that way that he says he will make the crooked paths straight. He will bring justice. He will bring a voice to the poor. So we have this Messiah who is willing to make the greatest sacrifice to become poor himself, to address the needs of those who are poor. It goes on. It then talks about the faithfulness of the Messiah, verses 6 to 9. It says that he will bring about this promise in all its fulfillment to Israel and all the nations. He will bring a unity and a peace, and he will bring the end of death. Let's just read some of these verses. I don't know about you, but when you read them, when you really let yourself think about what they mean, you realise it had to take a miracle for them to happen. It says that the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. It talks about children playing near the cobra's den. It talks about a young child putting its hand into a viper's nest. And then it says that they will neither harm nor destroy. It paints this picture of this perfect unity, this perfect peace amongst mankind, with creation, this idea that there will be no more death, no more suffering, a complete end to the greatest fears that we have. God is faithful, the Messiah is faithful to his promise. And the Christmas story is just the beginning of God's plan of salvation. He didn't just promise that he would bring someone to make this earth a bit better, He promised a complete miracle. He promised a complete transformation of the world as we know it. It's quite the manifesto, you could say. How is it possible? Israel's been failed by king after king after king. We know, don't we, that human leadership is flawed, that no one can be the perfect leader. Well, Isaiah gives us this clue in verses 1 and verses 10 verse 1, he talks about the Messiah as the shoot. He says that there's this stump of Israel and yet this shoot is going to come out of it. What he means there is a physical man, a physical descendant from the line of David, that this, will be, this leader will be a physical man. But then if you skip to verse 10, he talks about the root of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So he's saying that actually the line of David is going to come out of this root, out of this Messiah, i.e., he is also God. The power in this story lies in the fact that we don't just have another human leader, but we have God himself coming to this earth. That is the only reason why any of what we have just read is possible. Now, I've whizzed through that because what I wanted to do was leave space for us to think about our response to that. The luxury of Advent is that we are given this time to ask ourselves questions, not just to whiz through the motions, but to really challenge ourselves. What what is my posture within Advent? Because remembering is different to anticipating. If you look at the Israelites, they had 700 years to wait from when this prophecy was first written down by Isaiah to when the Messiah finally came. They go into a sharp decline. By the time the Messiah comes, Israel really is only a stump. They are desperate. They have been longing for the fulfillment of this prophecy, for this Messiah to come for 700 years they know their need, they know their desperation, they know their need for this saviour. And you can see it in the response of those closest to the Messiah in the Christmas story. When Mary is told by an angel that she is going to give birth to the Son of God, her response, because she knows the Bible, she knows these promises, she's desperate for these promises, her response is to sing this song of joy that repeats the promises that come from the Old Testament. She is overjoyed. Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, when she hears what is happening, she says to Mary, you are the most blessed woman on earth. Joseph, now Joseph, poor Joseph, he's engaged to this woman. He finds out she's pregnant. It is not a natural assumption to assume that therefore she must be miraculously pregnant with the Son of God. And yet in a dream... He is told that that is exactly what has happened. And with joy and serious courage, he chooses to believe it and stakes his whole life on it. That is how precious this news was to them. Is it precious to us? This is my 37th Christmas. I've been through the motions, I've heard the story, I've been to the nativities, It's so easy to either feel complacent or slightly numbed by almost the repetitiveness of it. My daughter, um, we were sitting in the car the other day outside school waiting to pick up my son. And we often have kind of kids' Christian music playing in the car. And the song, I admit it was slightly repetitive, but the song that we were listening to was saying in many different ways, Jesus loves you. An amazing message. I turned around and looked at my daughter, and she was sat there with her fingers firmly planted in her ears. And I was like, oh, do you not like this song? And she just looked at me, straight-faced, defiantly, and said, Mummy, I have heard this said to me so many times. I know that Jesus loves me. I do not need to listen to this song again. Sometimes, if we are honest, when we get to Advent subconsciously, maybe consciously, we can feel like that, regardless of where our faith is at, regardless of whether we have been a Christian for 37 years, or whether actually we just come to Christmas, to church at Christmas, to hear this story. We can have sort of that complacency of hindsight. The question to ask is, okay, so who am I really before this Messiah? Because the Israelites knew who they were. They knew that they were this stump. They knew their need. And actually, that's exactly where we are. Without this Messiah, the reality of our situation is that we are merely a stump. And without a new shoot, we have no prospects of life. We are in desperate need of being rescued. The other day, I was um, putting my children into the car after school, and just after I'd put them all in, this scene sort of unfolded before my eyes that slightly broke my heart. And um, it started with this dog that was clearly owned by someone, but the owner wasn't in sight, shooting across the road. Now, I love dogs, and so I wasn't just going to let this dog wander off because I knew that somewhere there would be a distraught owner. A couple of minutes later, A mother and a son came around the corner and they were clearly not having a good time. The mum was clearly at her wits end. She was beyond stressed. You could see it in her words and you could see it in her face. And the boy looked incredibly forlorn. And the mum rushed off to try and catch this dog. The boy was left on the pavement. It was freezing cold. They had been locked out of their house. And so all he had was a pair of socks and a dressing gown on. And I didn't know what to do, but I found myself going up to him and saying, you know, are are you okay? And he looked at me, and he was the same age as my son, so it was even more like, and he just said, it's it's all my fault. My mum is really cross with me. I was naughty at school, and now we're locked out of the house. She's meant to be going to work, and we've lost our dog. The mum then returned, having failed to get the dog, and... There is no judgment here because I know what it's like to be a mum stressed and to lose control, but she laid into her son in a way that just i just it broke me, and um, she then disappeared off to the house, I think, and this boy was still just standing there, and so I went over and i said let let 's go and find your dog because that 's something we can do to help and I found myself um, putting my my arm on his shoulder and just saying, your mum loves you, even though she might have just said the opposite. Mums get stressed. We say stuff we don't mean, but she loves you. And it was all fine. We found the dog. Um, But as I drove off, I found myself thinking, you know what, that's how God sees us. Forlorn, standing on the edge of a pavement with no shoes on and a dressing gown on, in desperate need of being rescued. And yet, we don't see it in ourselves. We're so happy, aren't we, to say that a human leader is fallible, that human leaders will never really deliver all of their promises. And yet, we are remarkably confident in saying that we can be the saviours of our own lives. Even if you have a faith, there's this almost magnet pull, magnetic pull, back to thinking that we can do it ourselves. And yet when we know our need, when we know our desperate need, the story of Christmas starts to look a bit different. We might, in some delusional moments, be able to say to ourselves, oh, I can be wise, I can be just. And yet the second part of this passage, where there is a promise that all death, all suffering will be removed, even in our most disillusioned moments, there's no way we could say that we could achieve that. There is no way that we can say that we have an answer. Even the best doctor, he might be able to delay the inevitable. He might be able to delay death. But actually, without the Messiah, that's all we have. We have nothing without him. And if we know our desperate state, then the story of Christmas produces a reaction in us, a response in us, that causes us to change every aspect of our lives. When we realize our need, we realize how incredible the Christmas story is, that this God would become man to save us, to save us from this state. But that's not where it ends. The Christmas story is just the beginning. We stand in a totally different place, to the Israelites. The Israelites are standing at the beginning of this passage. Isaiah, he wrote this prophecy down. He never lived to see it become true. They wait 700 years. We have the privilege of knowing that this first part of the passage actually happened, that Jesus actually came to this earth. We have a book that tells us these stories of Jesus walking on this earth of literally coming alongside the poor, healing the sick. We know it's true. And if we know that bit is true, then we can know with confidence that the second part of this passage is true. We still see destruction. We still see harm. We still see injustice. We still probably all deep down have a fear of death, whether it's our own or whether it's just of losing those that we love. And yet we know that if Jesus fulfilled the first part of this promise, then he will come and fulfill the second part. Do we really believe it? It's now been 2,700 years since Isaiah wrote this prophecy down. But we can be confident as we wait, that it will happen because he's faithful to his promises. And when we hold in one hand the Christmas story, the fact that Jesus sent this Savior for us, we hold that in one hand, and then in the other hand we hold this expectation that the story hasn't finished yet, that that one day he will come back. One day everything will be made right. There will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more loss. When we hold those two in our hand, it changes everything. Instead of feeling like on this earth we are walking on sinking sand, holding on to anything that feels vaguely reliable, we find ourselves walking on this firm promise, this firm ground, that we know a different story, that we are part of a different story, one that ends well, one that ends better than we can ever imagine. We have a lightness in our step and a far greater urgency in wanting to tell others this good news. So the challenge for us today during Advent is to have the courage to strip back within yourself all of those layers of distraction, all of those things we put on to not really see the reality, but to have the courage to strip it back, to really know who we are before the Messiah, to really know our desperate need for him. And then through that, we get to experience the greatest joy, the joy of knowing in pure relief that this isn't the end of the story that we have a Savior, a real, live Messiah who lives today and who will one day come back. So I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to hand over it to you. Whilst. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of the story of Christmas. And Lord, I pray that this Advent, you would give us the courage to see it for what it really is, to have that wisdom of God where we place ourselves on our knees before you and acknowledge our need for you. And to know the joy that comes as we do that and the freedom that comes with it. Amen.